Good morning. A couple of announcements. Uh, if you haven't already done this Bible study guide, I really want to recommend it to you. And it is, if you want if you want to share it with someone, we've got these out here. They're free. It is the Cosmic Conflict of Our God's Character by Brad and Dorothy Cole. Fantastic study guide. It really is amazing. So I just want to recommend it. They're free out there, so be sure and get one. Now let's go ahead and begin with prayer, and then I'll, I'll share some other things. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your Spirit will join us. Fill us with your love, your presence, your truth, and enable us to be effective representatives of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And so I want to share a few emails that I've received over the last couple of weeks since I was here last. It says, um, this is the first. I post your Bible study classes on my Facebook page, and I got a message from an SDA pastor in northern Minnesota today. He said there are some concerns about Tim Jennings' beliefs on the atonement, and he sent me a website to try and give me a better understanding on it. I smile to myself because I see people in the church that I have known for years that are thinking I'm misguided. For the first time in my life, I finally found peace, not only with Jesus, but in his Abba, too. Thank you so much for your ministry, Dr. Tim Jennings. That's from Minnesota. This is from Washington. Thanks for your ministry. Thanks for the ministry you're providing. My heart is glad every day as I continue to learn about this actuality of the character of God. It's my heart's desire to be available to God every moment of every day to adequately impart this life-changing truth to others. And this is from um, Nebraska. Someone recently shared a copy of God in Your Brain with me. I found it very enlightening uh, presentation and wanted to share it with others. That led me to your website where I've watched the April 19th and April 5 Bible study class. I cannot wait to go back and watch the fourth quarter on the sanctuary and get caught up on on this quarter. You have inspired me to an awakened interest in the lessons. The quarterlies have had excellent subject matter for a time such as this, but they have been biased in opinions that I don't believe correctly reveal my God the way he intended them to. Thank you for showing me that there are Adventist people that believe as I do about the love of God and not the demanding and punishing God. You are proof to me that the nearness of Christ soon return, for when when Christ's character shall be revealed in his people, then he shall return. And then the last, this is from Simon Harrison, who is our distribution manager for our materials in Australia. Perth had its annual big camp over Easter weekend. Yesterday we were able to set up a stall outside the ABC bookstore with Come and Reason materials. We gave away over 200 of each of the DVD sets, a box of each study guide, countless fundamental focus and brochures. We were able to sell Could It Be This Simple and the God-Shaped Brain through the ABC. Not sure of the final numbers as the ABC manager also purchased some for his stock. We had many positive comments, with many people saying they had heard good things from your visit, made some good contacts, and overall, pleased with the response. I heard that today people were going into the ABC asking for more and bought all of your books that were in stock. Of all the people that came, we only had one negative response. I know there were some of my very active opposers there, but they just walked past and tried not to make eye contact. (laughs) But the message is going forward, praise God. So, isn't that exciting? Yeah. Alrighty. You know, for some time we have been teaching in this class the truth about God's law of love, the design protocols upon which he's constructed and built his universe to operate, and contrasting that with the dictator view of, of a, an imperial authority who just punishes those who disagree. An online listener, Curtis Wiltsey, uh, in follow-up from our lessons on the Sabbath a couple of weeks ago, emailed me this week with, do- with documents on how deeply this infected idea of of an imposed arbitrary law has infected our church. This is out of a book called The Sabbath in Scripture and History, published by the Review and Herald in 1982. It says, 
in an arbitrary manner, God appointed that on the seventh day we should come to rest with his creation in a particular way. He filled this day with a, with a content that is uncontaminated by anything related to the cyclical changes of nature or the movements of the heavenly bodies. That content is the idea of absolute sovereignty of God. You understand what that's saying? The Sabbath is a, a the Sabbath is set up as uh, an, a test of God's absolute power and authority. That's what it is. That the content of this idea is absolute sovereignty of God, a sovereignty unqualified by any indirect cognizance of the natural movements and time and rhythms. But basically, there's no reason for it other than God, as the sovereign has declared it to be so. As the Christian takes heed of the Sabbath and keeps it holy, he does so purely in answer to God's command. This reminds me of a time I was at a a church on Sabbath morning, and the pastor came up for the introductory prayer, and he said, um, in prayer, we're all kneeling, and he's praying, Lord, we are here today, not because we want to hear the special music, not to visit with friends. We're not even here today to listen to the sermon. We're here for one reason and one reason only. You have commanded us to be here. That's what this is saying. The only reason we do it is because of an edict from the, the absolute sovereign, uh, yeah, absolute sovereignty of God. Thus the Sabbath command comes nearer to the true measure of spirituality than any other commandment as, and as in the days of Israel of old, it is often more of a test of loyalty to God than any other. This paragraph describes a dictator. He's in power. He's made a test day. He's, there's no reason for it. He says, do it to show that you're loyal to me, and if you're not do it, then, then you're going to have to be, you know, reap the consequences of that, which is going to come for me too. Um, <clears throat> listen to the position that our church founders took, which is quite different than what you just read, what I just read. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 311. Again, the people were reminded of the sacred obligation of the Sabbath. Yearly festivals were appointed, at which all men of the nation were to assemble before the Lord, bringing to him their offerings of gratitude and the first fruits of the bounties. The object of all these regulations was stated. They proceeded from no exercise of mere arbitrary sovereignty. Do you hear that? No exercise of mere arbitrary. We have this other thing, arbitrary sovereignty. Okay? All were given for the good of Israel. They were given for a reason, for their good, for their blessing. Here's another one. This is our of Ages 283-284. As the Jews departed from God and failed to make the righteousness of Christ their own by faith, the Sabbath lost its significance to them. Satan was seeking to exalt himself and to draw men away from Christ, and he worked to pervert the Sabbath because it is a sign of the power of Christ. You should think, the power of Christ. And think in the Bible, what is that power? What is that power? What is that power? You know, if you, if you pull that text out and you look at the Bible, hopefully your computers are going, bing, 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 like the gospel is the power of Christ unto salvation, that Paul says in Romans. The gospel? What is the, what is the gospel? The good news? The good news about what? It is about God. See, it's the truth about who God is. This is why we wage war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The power is in who God is. That's, that's where the power is. Anyway, the Sabbath is a sign we talked about in our lesson about that because the Sabbath is a sign of the power of Christ. The Jewish leaders accomplished the will of Satan by surrounding God's rest day with burdensome requirements. In the days of Christ, the Sabbath had become so perverted that its observance reflected the character of selfish and arbitrary men rather than the character of the loving Heavenly Father. 
The rabbis virtually represented God as giving laws which it was impossible for men to obey. And by the way, how much of Christianity teaches this? It's impossible to obey. You'll never be sinless. You'll continue to sin. That's why we have to have a legal payment applied to our account, and you accept that payment by faith. Your record books are stamped, but you will not be able to obey. You will not be able to live victorious. It's the same idea taught today. They led the people to look upon God as a tyrant and to think that the observance of the Sabbath, as he required it, made men hard-hearted and cruel. It was the work of Christ to clear away these misconceptions. It's very, very, very interesting. And then another online listener, Dale Topol, or Topol, I'm not sure how he pronounces it, emailed me a quote from George Knight's new book, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, page 122, published by the review in 2013. And remember, George Knight wrote the book, The Cross of Christ, which four years ago, when we were having some discussions with some of the theological leadership over here in the community, they used this book as basically their textbook to oppose what we believe in this class. But this is, what, this is out of uh, George Knight's news book, new book, and, and notice the progression. The, 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 this page is entitled, I Am My Own Judge. Starts with John 5.22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, there is a thought pregnant with meaning. Jesus as our judge? Many of us have seen pictures of the judgment in which which a somewhat apathetic, if not fearsome, Father sits upon the judgment throne with Jesus prostrate before him, pleading for the salvation of his followers. Wrong on both counts. First, the Father is not indifferent, let alone fearsome. He is not someone who has to be persuaded by Jesus or anyone else. Isn't this really good so far? This is really good. Yeah. Yeah. The plain fact of the case is that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John three sixteen and 17. Banish all th- thought of God as a stern judge who needs to be convinced by a soft-hearted Jesus. No, it was the Father himself who, out of a warm and caring heart, initiated the plan of salvation. Not only did the Father begin the plan, but according to Jesus, the Father has even handed the responsibility for judgment over to him. And that is just the beginning of an interesting part of the story, because Jesus tells us in John 12 that he is turning our judgment over to us. Do you find that one hard to believe? Well, listen to him. Quote from John 12, 47 and 48. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings as a a judge, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. Now I know that Jesus said that it will be his words that finally judge, but think about the implications of that statement. It is you and I as individuals who make decisions about accepting or rejecting that judgmental word. We have the final decision-making authority as to where we will spend eternity. The hinge is how we relate to him through his word. In that sense, we are our own judges. What do you think of that? It was, it was it's exactly, she says it's amazing. Yeah, it's very well said. I agree with it completely. He's describing, by the way, natural law. The law of sowing and reaping. You make a choice. You decide what you're going to believe, what you're going to hold to. It changes you. Become either more like Christ as you open the heart and let the Holy Spirit come in and you practice his methods. Or you reject Christ and you practice the methods of Satan. You become hardened. This is what he's describing. You are judging yourself. Revelation 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of 
his judgment, which is the old way he describes here, the hour he sits in judgment, but we understand it actually means the hour in which God is being judged by us. Paul, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, says, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God was, 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 was misrepresented and lied about. And at the end of time, God is calling for a people who will discern rightly who God is and make a right judgment to trust him. That's why we give him glory. We reveal his true nature and character because we judge him rightly. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth. In other words, we're called back to judge God as the creator, the designer, the builder, which means we're called back to see God's law as the protocols upon which life is built and reject this Roman imperial dictator that has infected Christianity. But I do want to contrast, just for the purpose of giving us hope, that there is growth happening in our church. This is out of the book Cross of Christ, which is published by the Review in 2008 and was used four years ago uh, to actually refute everything that I just read in the uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus book by the same author. God, as the Bible pictures him, cannot and will not stand idly by while his creation suffers. His reaction is judgment on sin. And we should see this judgment as the real meaning of biblical wrath. God condemns sin in judgment and will eventually move to destroy it completely. Once sin fully matures so that all creation recognizes that God is right in his judgments on sin and sinners, then he reacts to annihilate both. <laughs> Does that sound like you mean the same author? No. It is the same author. One in 2008, one in 2013. Did God, now think what he said. When God saw sin, did God react to sin? Absolutely. Absolutely he reacted. By doing what? Well, Pardon? Sending his son. Okay, if we want to use the term judging it, I would just rephrase it. He doesn't judge it in a judicial judicial manner. He diagnoses it. He judges it like a doctor. He diagnoses. This is deviant from how I built life to operate. This is out of harmony with my nature and character. This is destructive. My creatures will die in this condition. And he judges that, that we're in a terminal state, if you want to use the word judgment, but it's a diagnosis. And then, as the... John 3, 16 and 17 said, he sent his son to remedy the condition, to save, to heal, not to condemn. It would be interesting to talk with the author and see what changed his mind over the last five years. Yes. So judging as described in in the cross of Christ reference is based on an imposed law lie, which leads to the inevitable lie that God is the source of death and God must inflict pain and suffering, God must kill the deviant. Whereas, under the natural law, we see that God is curing, healing, restoring his creation and provided remedy through Jesus Christ. And those who reject the remedy remain. Remember, we are dead in our trespass and sin, the scripture says. We are dead. We're terminal. Our condition is, is, is in a terminal state. And without intervention from our creator, we will die. So to me, I, I thought this whole thing was actually some good news that the truth about God is penetrating at least some elements of the church and this false imperial law construct may be challenged at some some levels beyond our class. And I thought that was exciting. All right, Sabbath lesson, first three paragraphs. It says, well-known magazine ran a full-page ad with headlines that said, achieve immortality. We're not kidding. In a sense, they were kidding. Because the ad went on to say, to find out how you can leave a charitable legacy that will make gifts in your name forever, contact, contact us for a free work, um, free booklet. 
Writers, scholars, philosophers, and theologians through the millennium have all wrestled with the question of death and what death does to the meaning of our lives. Hence, the ad was a clever, if ultimately unsuccessful way to help people deal with their mortality. In contrast, all throughout the New Testament, we have been shown the only way to achieve immortality, and that is through faith in Jesus as opposed to keeping the uh, keeping of the law, even though we are to keep it. So what does it mean? We have been shown the only way to achieve immortality, and that is through faith in Jesus as opposed to keeping of the law, even though we are to keep it. What does faith in Jesus mean? And I'm going to tell you, it's two di- divergent possibilities. It's really straight two divergent. One, Faith in Jesus means we claim the legal payment of his blood to pay our sin debt to the Father, and therefore we have salvation. We have our claim to salvation. This is what a faith. I have faith in his payment in my behalf. I have faith that his robe of righteousness covers me and the Father can't see me. I have faith that, that my record books have been stamped with his blood. Or we are one to genuine trust open our hearts and surrender our tired selves, lives, future, we surrender all to him, the Holy Spirit comes in and actually writes law in our hearts and minds, transforms us, renews us. We are new beings, new creation in his image. And thus, as the scripture says, when he comes, we shall be like, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. It's one or the other. Yes, Wendell. The, the second or the end of that sentence, even though we are to keep it, we aren't to keep it. We are to be like him. There's a difference. We'll explore this. Yeah, this is a good point to, to point out. I think we want to unpack that and pull that thread just a little bit. This is, a- is there a difference? I mean, the, Christ is the embodiment of the law, so if, if that law gets written in our heart and mind, we will keep it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a matter of road obedience, blind obedience, it's a transformative process that, that heals us. Yeah, yeah. So, so both of you I hear are right. One, I hear him responding about this idea, there's a list and we're going to work really hard to keep, versus, hey, you know what, I don't have to work to keep it because I'm in harmony with it. Right. They both decide, so the metaphor I sometimes give is, uh, is you know, back in the day, you guys may not remember this, those of you who didn't go to med school, but where I went to med school, there was actually a, a hospital that used to be a tuberculosis hospital. And it had a big seal down on the front. And the tuberculosis hospitals of the day, um, people would come and they were locked in. You couldn't leave because you were, it was a community contagion and, and you had to stay until you were, you were well or died, one of the two. And so they could put up on the wall, you know, thou shalt not cough, thou shalt not have fever, thou shalt not spit up blood, thou shalt enlist all the things that that you have to achieve in order to be able to leave. Though the people who leave will not do any of those things. And and some people could look at that as a list of things we're going to work really hard to do. So they're going to work really hard to suppress their cough. They're going to work, you know, work really hard try not try to cool themselves down, stay calm, not to get a fever, and all this kind of stuff. Versus the others could could participate with a doctor or take the remedy which results in the sickness going away, and then they don't have any of those things. How we view the commandments? Do we view it as a list of things you've got to work hard to do, or do you view it as a description of what you look like when the law has been put on the heart and mind, when you've been restored to righteousness? When you've been restored to righteousness, and Christ is first, well, you don't have any other gods before you. You don't take his name in vain. You don't make images. You don't murder. You don't, you don't commit adultery. You don't dishonor your parents. You don't do those things when you have love in your heart and you love others more than self. This is what you look like. So it's a description, or is it a system of things we have to work hard to try to make it happen? 
And this is the imposed law that all the things we have to do or else versus a diagnostic tool and a description. Sunday's lesson, first sentence, I think it says this fairly well, but I'm going to challenge you to think how you might rephrase it. First sentence, it says, though it points out sins, the law is powerless to save us from them. Fairly well, but I think it could be stated better. How could you say it better? Well, here's how I stated it. Though it points out sin, the law is powerless to save us from it. Does that sound different to you than though it points out sins, it is powerless to save us from them, versus though it points out sin, it is powerless to save us from it? Does it mean the same thing to you? What's the difference? The way they state it seems to emphasize acts, behaviors, deeds, which is all based on that list of rules you've got to keep. The way I state it, it emphasizes the condition of our heart and mind being deviant from God's design, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. A condition for which we didn't choose and for which we do not need to feel guilty. HIV-infected man and HIV-infected woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Does the baby have a condition which, if unremedied, will kill it? This is us. We're born with a condition. We didn't choose it. How many of you chose to become a sinner? How many chose to be born? Exactly. How many have chose this? We have a condition. God knows. This is why this idea that, that we're born under guilt is wrong. We're not born guilty. We're born terminal. And, and imagine if you had a grandchild or great-grandchild born to some rebellious ch- child of yours with HIV, and it's your grandchild born HIV-infected. Would you hate the child? No. Would you seek to punish the child? No. Or would you seek to save it? And if you had a remedy that worked, okay, the child grows up, you've got a remedy, it's free. You offer the child the remedy, but the child will not take the remedy. Is that the child's fault now, the child's old enough to understand? Yes, it's not their fault they're born with the condition, it's their fault they refuse the remedy. And if they refuse the remedy, do you have to kill them? This is, this is our condition, very simply. We're born with a condition, not our fault. God's not mad. He sent Christ to save us. He offers us the remedy. We can partake freely and be transformed in the inner person. And if we don't, we die. And he cries. Next paragraph, it says, Notice in this passage, and it's referring to the Romans 5, 12 to 21 passage, it says, Notice in this passage the constant association between sin and death. Time and again, they appear in immediate relationship with each other. And that's because sin, the violation of God's law, leads to death. Why is there an association between sin and death? How would you describe that association? Well, it's one of two. Here, here's, let me just break it down. You pick and see if, the, if you can think of another possibility. It's either because sin actually does something to the sinner which causes death. Sin breaks the design protocol, and I think about it with life. So it does something to the sinner causes it, or sin breaks a heavenly rule resulting in God using his power to kill you. Sin's either doing something to the sinner that causes death, or sin isn't causing death, God is inflicting it. Any other possibilities? Yes, in the back. One of our listeners um, says, how do you explain the flood as a natural protocol um, from, you know, like you do with the, with the end results of sin? Yeah. Interesting question. All Old Testament deaths 
our sleep. They're not the result. They're not the ultimate result of sin. The wage of the sin is eternal non-existence. God in grace, first death, this is what we call first death, this death of a sleep, this death where we're suspended at time, this death from which we rise, either in the first or second resurrection, this death is actually an evidence of grace. This is God's grace at work to allow for the plan of salvation to be worked out. If there was no plan of salvation, if there was no healing and restoration, there would only be eternal non-existence. So the first death in all Old Testament examples are not evidences of what happens when sin happens. They're evidence of grace interfering with the ultimate consequence. That's what they're evidence of. Whether they happen at the hand of man, Cain killing Abel, whether they happen at the hand of the devil, the the devil brought storms to kill Job's kids, whether they happen at God putting the firstborn in Egypt to sleep, or the 185,000 Assyrians, or whether it happens as as an accident of some sort, somebody falls off a building. Either way, they all are resting in the grave, or of old age. Daniel, rest in the grave. You'll rest in the grave until the resurrection. They're all resting, waiting for that resurrection. Yes. So he, he wants, he's saying, is not the flood a type of the final destruction? Metaphorically, not literally. Metaphorically, it's a type in that uh, uh, a, a, an event was coming upon the world. There was an opportunity for salvation provided by Christ through the ark. Everyone was preached here for 120 years. They had opportunity to get on the ark. Why did they die? Because God killed them? No, because they didn't get on the ark. That's why they died. They didn't get on the ark. And so metaphorically, yes, it's a, it's a type. Um, the, 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 uh, the death that comes would be the death that comes of unremedied sin. We have an opportunity to get on the ark of Jesus Christ. The ark represents Christ. We can actually get on with him, be healed in person. But if we don't, we die of the condition. So metaphorically, but not literally, water's not going to destroy the world again. Yes, these are good questions, very good questions. And some people can conceive of natural ways the flood came. Some people conceive that God actually acted to uh, to keep open the avenue for the Messiah because there's only one righteous man left on the entire earth. Only one. Think that through. Without Messiah coming, without Christ becoming incarnate, human race is lost. So Satan is strat- strategically working to shut down every heart and mind to work with God so no hearts and minds are open to the movement of the Spirit. There's no avenue for Christ to come. One point in human history, the flood, there's only one righteous man left. The avenue was getting very narrow. So either way, God withdraws the presence of the Holy Spirit, and nature starts falling apart, and the flood happens, and then all the wicked uh, spirit temples are gone, and, and now the Holy Spirit is again working on the earth, and so nature stabilizes, and, and, uh, and, the, and the flood is over. That's how some people conceive it. Or God acts to put people into the grave to keep open the channel. They're still coming up out of the grave with the same current of thoughts they went in the grave to finish out their life by their own free will choices, right? Everybody familiar with the, with the references that teach what happens at the end of the thousand years when the New Jerusalem comes down, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open, the wicked dead are raised, there's a period of time that goes by where they're making implements of war, and this entire time New Jerusalem's on the earth and the gates are open. And what do they do? How many go in? Why? There aren't angels with flaming swords keeping them out. Why do they go in? Because they're they're fulfilling, they're they're living out and 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 concluding their own lives by the exercise of their own choices. What happened at the flood did not close or terminate their lives for them. They terminate their own. Tim, yes. Another thing that comes to mind regarding the flood is that I think 
of God is busily answering a lot of people's questions. And one of the questions he might have answered through the flood would be, I'm only surrounded by evil continually. This isn't fair. You didn't, you know, I didn't have any good influences in my life. You know, if I'd had the good influences, I might have been saved. I might have been good. So Noah is good. All the evil influences are wiped out. They start fresh. Same thing happens all over again, despite just the good influences of Noah. It can be seen that even if you wiped out all the evil influences and started fresh, the exact same thing would happen all over again. Because the condition of humanity is infected and deviant from God's design. Yeah, good. All right. So the lesson, the lesson then goes on to say, no matter how bad sin is, God's grace is sufficient to cover it for those who claim his promises by faith. I think sin repels you from God. It just repels you from going anywhere near him. Yes. Well said. Yes. If you have... If you're cherishing and holding to sin in your life, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... And who were they running from? Who was their best friend in the universe? Yes, and so you're exactly right. When we have sin in our heart, it perverts our, our, our perceptions, our understanding, our reason, our conscience, our ability to understand right and wrong, our decision-making. And so we actually, if we're operating on those motives, we're making decisions that take us farther and farther and farther into self-destruction and away from God. I like that. So what about this idea, no matter how bad sin is, God's grace is sufficient to cover it for those who claim his promises by faith? How can this be misunderstood? And, and this can be misunderstood, this can be understood in a healthy way. Misunderstanding is the classic candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple, co- cover it with candy, it looks good on the inside, but it's still rotten to the core. This is how many people understand these ideas, that when we accept Christ, we're covered with a robe of righteousness. The Father looks at us, he can't see our wickedness. It's like a force shield. The Father's vision doesn't penetrate anymore. He only sees the perfection of Christ, but we're still wicked and rotten. This is actually what's taught at the university. I've talked with the chairman of the Department of Theology, and his view of righteousness is that God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. That God doesn't see how unrighteous your character is. He sees the perfect character of Christ. This is a lie. Here, here, go ahead. This is from Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. Listen to what the historical founders of our church taught about this idea. This robe, woven in the loom of heaven, has not one thread of human devising. Christ, in his humanity, wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us all our righteousness' filthy rags. Everything that we have of ourselves is, so defi- is, is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Now listen to this. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united to his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Does this sound like a covering over? No, this is why we are to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. We're renewed in the inner man. The heart is to be circumcised by the spirit. We have the law written upon the heart and mind. The stony heart is to be removed. The heart of flesh is to be put in. All the Bible is teaching an actual regenerating, retransforming process in the believer. So if you want to use the covering over, it would be much more... Accurate, I think, if we were to say it like the old VCR tapes, you would record over. 
you would record over. Or even on a hard drive, when you have a software operating system that's all infected with a virus and you reload a new, a perfect operating system, you write over. And in so writing over with the new system, you're not just covering over, you're writing over and destroying the old. The old is gone, the new has come. You're replacing. Transformation. Re- exactly. This is exactly what it means. But this is not, and this is only understood properly under the design protocol law. It is not taught under the imperial dictator view of God. Don't you think there's a lot of confusion between sin's behaviors and the terminal condition? And I think people, when they're talking about this, mix this up all the time. Absolutely. And in fact, that's perfect segue into the fourth paragraph, which says, let's see, we are now, we still on the same day. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Influenced by the translation of First John three four, the King James version, sin is transgression of the law. Many restrict sin to the violation of the Ten Commandments alone. However, a more literal translation is sin is lawlessness, anomia. Anything that goes against the principles of God is sin. Hence, although the Ten Commandments had not yet been formally revealed when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he violated a command of God and was consequently guilty of sin. Indeed. It is through the sin of Adam that the curse of death has infected all generations of humanity. You notice how they make this behavioral. He took the fruit. He disobeyed a command. It's sins. It's action. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that the behaviors are actually results of a character, heart, mind defect. You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. Behavior. I say if you look at one with lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. Jesus taught that the behaviors are actually acting out of a defective heart. Notice, this is out of, again, one of the founders of our church, historical document, Review and Herald, January 5, 1886. Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. What came first? Bad behavior or a change in belief about God? Change in belief resulting in behavior. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So lies believed, this is that, 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 that progression of, of destructive events. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. You believe your spouse is cheating, but they're not. Think about how love and trust breaks. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I'm afraid I've got to protect myself. And fear and selfishness is the infection of the new heart mode. It's not love anymore. It's fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness leads to destructive behaviors. We're three steps down before we get to the behaviors in this this consequence. But much of Christianity is focused on the behaviors and not the heart transformation. And the healing progression is just the opposite. Truth believed destroys lies and wins to trust. When we trust, we open the heart and the spirit comes in and our motives are changed from fear and selfishness to love for God and others. And in love for God and others, we now act righteously instead of sinfully. But when we focus simply on behavior, the do's and the don'ts, we never get the heart transformation. We never get victory. Well, that so hopeless? Because they keep presenting this as they keep the commandments, but you can't keep it. Exactly. That's why you, and because you can't keep it, that's why you have to have your legal penalty paid. See? And this is why it stays perpetually in this, uh, in this ruminating loop over here where no one ever gets any real peace. This, yes? There's a, a point of decision in both of these things because really, when, when people don't want to keep the Sabbath in any way, they don't want to recognize the, the authority of God to establish the Sabbath, 
they want to do what they want to do, period. And whenever there's, uh, you know, all the other Ten Commandments, there are excuses that people back up and make, uh, they make a decision that this can't be kept, and I can show you technically how it can't be kept. So therefore, they, they bring this confusion that, that someone else mentioned here into the whole equation, and it becomes a matter of just total confusion that they maintain with the, with the um, fear that somehow if you choose not to be lazy spiritually and choose to work with God or the Holy Spirit, that you are working for your salvation. Because the scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right. Can a human being in sin be saved by God without the cooperation of that human being? No. No. Can a human being in sin be saved from sin without God in their life? No. No. It takes a cooperative effort. It is a cooperative relationship between partaking of what Christ has achieved for us, being filled with the Spirit, and choosing to align ourselves with Him. No amount of any effort we can put on our own apart from him will result in renewal and transformation. But God stands at the door and knocks. Notice he doesn't, I stand at the door with a battering ram and I will get in there and change you. No, he knocks. And without our participation to open the heart and partake of him, then we will not be saved. Why? Because what is it that, what does salvation actually look like? What does it look like? Jesus. Okay, fine. And what's it look like? It's love. It is love. Can love be forced? Can anyone use power, authority, threat, intimidation to get love? He no. He the door and invites you in to know my character of love and let that transform your heart and then let it shine through you so that your actions just outflow from the heart change. Absolutely. So here's my paraphrase of Romans five twelve to 21. Therefore, the infection of distrust of God, which deformed man's heart and mind with selfishness and fear and results only in death, infected the human race when Adam accepted Satan's lies about God and broke trust with him. This infection of fear and selfishness is inherited by all human beings because all are born infected. This is revealed by the fact that before the written law was given, the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness was already in the world. But this infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness is not diagnosable without the law. Nevertheless, even without being diagnosed as infected with the terminal condition, humans still died from the time of Adam to Moses, even those who did not break a specific command like Adam did, revealing that the problem is in the infective state of our minds, not a legal issue with God. Adam, the first man being the conduit through which the infection entered humanity, represents the one man who is the conduit of conduit of the antidote which cures the many who accept it but the gift of the antidote is not like the infection for if everyone is born infected with a terminal condition because of the choice of adam how incredibly effective must the antidote brought by christ be since it cures all who takes it again the gift of the antidote is not like the result of the breach of trust adam's breach of trust infected all humanity and all humanity is diagnosed as sick and dying This occurred without each individual choosing to be infected, but the antidote came after humankind had been severely damaged and deformed by selfishness and sin and brought cleansing, purification, health, and complete restoration. If by the choice of one man's distrust, selfishness and death permeated all, 
humanity, how much more will those who accept the remedy that Christ has achieved experience restored trust and complete healing to live forever with God? Therefore, just as Adam's distrust infected humanity with the fatal condition of fear and selfishness, so too Christ's choice to sacrifice self achieved the life-giving remedy for all mankind. Just as Adam's choice infected the human race with a terminal condition, so too Christ's per- perfect life has brought the remedy to heal all who accept it. The written law was added so that the infection of distrust and selfishness could be more easily seen and diagnosed, and where the exposure of sin and selfishness increased, God's willingness to heal increased all the more, so that just as distrust and selfishness brought deformity and death, even more importantly, God's gracious remedy brought by Christ results in complete healing and life eternal. Thoughts? Do do, do you see how this is framed in this design protocol model rather than an imperial list of rules that one must keep and you have to have some legal accounting mechanism happen in a courtroom? Yes. There's a really neat verse in Isaiah 35, starting with verse 3. It says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, he will come with vengeance and with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Okay. And And how do we understand that? I like what you've said in here before. That what is the best retribution for somebody who's been murdered, for example? It's getting their life back. Resurrection. Yes. Okay. If you actually put that together, and I can't remember the other text, but vengeance. Mine. Vengeance is mine. Yes. This is this. But there's a text in Isaiah that actually talks about God's vengeance is, and I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but it's destroying sinfulness, destroying disease, and curing the problem. That's his vengeance. That's what it is. It's not punishing. It's restoration. It's destroying sin, not sinners. So a doctor takes vengeance on disease to destroy the infection, the meningitis, the cancer. Doctor will, doctor will use a, 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 a um, radiation knife to cut and destroy cancer to save the patient. He's taking vengeance on the disease, not on the, not on the patient's suffering. And that's what God's vengeance really is. It's on sin, the defect in our character that he wants to destroy while saving and curing us. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, one of the most difficult concepts for Christians to comprehend is the continued role of the law for, one, for the one saved by grace. Think that through. This is not difficult for us. This is difficult for the imperial law people. They can't figure it out. Um, but comprehend the continued role of the law for the one saved by grace. If a believer attains righteousness by accepting the sufficiency of the life and death of Jesus, why is it still necessary to keep the law? The question provides another opportunity to repeat the key point. The law was never intended to provide salvation. Its function after the fall was to divine sin. That's absolutely right. Yet the cross doesn't negate the need for a person to follow God's law any more than someone having been pardoned for violating the speed limit can now continue to violate it. And it falls apart in that last sentence. Why does that last sentence cause the whole thing to collapse? Speed limits are arbitrary imposed laws. Exactly right. Speed limits are arbitrary imposed laws. There's no inherent consequence. Requires a ruling authority to police it. Police breaches in it and uh, have judicial proceedings, find guilt or innocent, and then impose punishments. This is exactly how they view God running his universe. Remember the paralytic healed by Christ? As Christ healed the paralytic, what did he say to him? Say no more. Your, your sins are forgiven you. Then 
you know, go and live a better life, these types of things. Okay, but he said, your sins are forgiven you because his physical illness was a result, a result of deviation from God's, when I say sin, his result from sin. You want to reference that Desire of Ages 267, Desire of Ages 267. After healing, would he be free? So he's healed. He, he, he lived in violation of God's law. He ended up, because of that, injuring his body in such ways that he ends up a paralytic. Christ comes and heals him. Is he now free to go and continue violating God's law and avoid being destroyed again? I think um, what it is is like what the Bible says, when one uh, evil spirit leaves and you leave it empty, seven mm-hmm. could return. Yes. One of our guests here said, why, does, why do you think Adam's choice affected, infected the rest of humanity? Or was it because his very anatomy was then changed and therefore any offspring would physically, mentally have the same infection? Yes, absolutely. God created Adam and Eve and before sin created them with an ability, and he said, an ability to make beings in their image. He made them in God's image and he gave them this procreative ability to create beings in their image. As they change themselves, they pass along those changes to their kids. Now we know with science today, with epigenetic modification, that you can make decisions that will damage you and you will pass those changes on to your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. Conversely, you can make decisions that are healthy for you and you will alter your gene expression in different ways and pass on advantages. So yes, they passed it along. That's why the Bible says, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Tim, they, they want to know why God would create it that way. Why not just let each individual be born, you know, clean with the, the ability to make the decision from the beginning of life? It's not possible. It is not possible to take clean water out of a septic tank. You can't dip a cup into a septic tank and get clean water. You can't do it. Once they were infected, God could make new creations. No question. He could make new beings out of the dirt of the ground and breathe in their nostrils the breath of life and make new beings perfect and sinless. He could do that anytime he wants. But they would not be part of this creation. They would be a new creation. They would be a new species, if you will. They wouldn't be descended of Adam. Every human being is a descendant of Adam, and Adam infected himself. Yes? This goes back to the idea that God creates all these human beings and creates all these defects and whatnot, and it's God's will that they be born that way. It's not God's will. That's right. Yeah. God created you just like you are. So let me, let me, let me push on here. So, so let me give this an example. We're talking about this question of oh, understanding the law and why once you have been forgiven, once you've been saved by grace, why you're not free to break it anymore. So imagine this condition. A, a person uh, today lives promiscuously and gets HIV infected. And they surrender to Christ and they re- experience a miraculous healing. And they're completely healed of this HIV infection. Now while they have the freedom of moral choice to go out and live promiscuously... If they, de- if they choose to do that, will they avoid further injury to themselves and reinfection if they do that? No. So they have the moral freedom to deviate from God's law, but they can't deviate from God's law and still be healthy. This is like the whole debate right now about marijuana. As I've said in here, there's a whole debate going on in our country. The legislatures of our states can make marijuana legal to smoke. They can pass a law to do that. They can never pass a law to make it healthy to smoke. They can't legislate the laws of health. 
And so when we understand God's laws are the design protocols, and we have been saved by grace, restored into righteousness, restored to love God and others more than stuff, we go, I don't want to step out there. There's always pain and suffering and destruction out there. That's not how life is built to operate. I want to stay in harmony. Now, I'm free to step out there, just as you guys are free to tie a plastic bag over your head if you want. But why would you? Isaiah 1, starting with verse 24. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Yeah, there it is. You see that? It's a great, that's the text in Isaiah 1. His vengeance is to remove our impurities and our, and our dross or our wickedness or our defects. That's his vengeance. It's a doctor. I'm going to take vengeance by re- removing all the diseases and, and viral infections and so forth. So that's done by that revelation of full truth so that, that fe- the, the fear of lies and misunderstanding come into full light and clarity. And that's right. And so you, that's why those who are lost, it says in Thessalonians, are lost. Why? Because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Their minds close themselves to truth. It is through the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And it is through the truth that we, the lies are expelled. We are one to trust, and then we're transformed by the indwelling spirit. Um, boy, there's so many things. I'm going to have to jump ahead. Last paragraph. Um, it, this, I have to get to this one because I think some of our class would want us to. It says, this is a quote out of Acts of the Apostles. It says, Paul had ever exalted the divine law. He had shown that in the law there is no power to save men from the penalty of disobedience. Wrongdoers must repent of their sins and humble themselves before God, whose just wrath they have incurred by breaking his law, and they must also exercise faith in the blood of Christ as their only means of pardon. Do you like that expression? Do you like how that's stated? Rightly understood. Rightly, there's nothing wrong with you, but this is the question. How do we understand it? When you read passages like this, my recommendation is you start by going back word by word and defining from the biblical basis the meanings of the words. And then it will become more clear. First, also, you read the entire chapter. Or you can read more widely, it will help. Too. Exactly. And how do we define the terms? By reading more widely, right? Yeah. Okay, so divine law. What is the divine law? law of love. The law of love. The, 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 the protocols upon which life is built. The expression of God's character, yes. The template upon which life exists. The principle of giving, yes, that's it. Where do the Ten Commandments fit in? Are they the eternal law or a distilled version codified and added for humans later. Added later. They were not in existence in Eden. They were not in existence in heaven. Angels didn't need the law to pass things down two and three generations or to honor their parents. Um, there was no Sabbath prior to the Sabbath being created at the end of creation week of this planet. Didn't exist. Because it was never needed in, in, in universal history until the war began and this creation was created. Then the Sabbath was needed because of the context of when it was, when it was created. This I love this quotation. This is out of Review and Herald, April 27, 1911. By lips that will not lie, God's law is declared to be holy, just, and good. Our duty to obey this law is to be the burden of the last message of mercy to the world. I love that when you understand the last message of mercy. Anybody tell me what that last message is according to this author? 
God's character of love. That's exactly right. You can find that in Christ's Object Lessons 415. The final message of mercy, the light in the world for Christ's return, is the truth about his character of love. And that's tied directly in this passage with obeying God's law. Because you can't reveal his character acting selfishly. You can't reveal his character with a red cross on your tunic with a sword killing Muslims. You can't reveal his character when you merge the Bible and the U.S. flag and go to war. You can't do it. So, our duty is to be the whole law. It is to be a burden of the last message of mercy to the world. God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created, but holiness made known. It is a code of principles expressing mercy, goodness, and love. It presents to fallen humanity the character of God and states plainly the whole duty of men. Notice, this is a codification for man, the Ten Commandments, a codification for human beings of a law that was already in existence because the universe is built to operate upon it. So, so first thing, the divine law is God's character of love, the principles of life. What is the penalty to, for disobedience? What is the penalty? Come on, this is not a trick question. Wages. Death, okay, death. Why is that the penalty? God gives you up to your own choices. It's a natural result. It's a natural, natural result. Yes, what is the penalty for jumping in the ocean with 100 pounds of concrete tied to your feet? And now you're breaking the law of respiration. You're out of harmony with the law. What Can the law of respiration save you from breaking it? No. Get your mind around this. If you do that and violate the law of respiration, the law has no power to save you. That's exactly how it is with, the, with God's Ten Commandments. The law has no power to save us. This is what Paul's making sense. The law defines reality. That's what it does. It defines, it establishes, helps see what reality is based and built upon. But it has no power to fix deviations from it. What does repent mean? What does repent mean? Change Change directions, a new motive, a new desire. Uh, It's it's much deeper than a physical turning of your body, and I know you meant that. It's it's a changing of direction of the heart motive. So we turn away from selfishness towards love. It's a a redirecting of the motives of the heart. That's what true repentance is. And that's why the thief on the cross, even though he was down to the last few minutes of his life or hours of his life, he could turn directions on the cross at the last minute. Although it's he did it, but it's unlikely that it happens that way. But that's only because it wasn't the last minute for him. It was a progression of building time. He had had seeds planted in his heart that were building in his heart, and it just happened that, that it came to the culmination at that moment when he was on the cross face-to-face with Christ. That was his first opportunity to be that close with Christ. Um, what is just or justice? Remember, we're still breaking down the terms in this paragraph. Righteousness. Righteousness, okay. What's another way to say that? Right, that's right. It's so right. Yeah, it's doing what's right, doing what's just, doing what's right, or being right, or being righteous. Yes. And, and how do we know what is right or righteous? What what's the what's the defining tool? God's law of love. That's right. His design protocols, his character. That's what determines what's right. So what is wrath? And Russell said this earlier. According to the Bible, multiple places, lots of them. Romans one, God, is, letting go. God letting go. God lets go to reap what we've chosen. That's exactly right. What is faith? Trusting that God's character is, as He says, true love. Trusting, I would expand it to say, trusting ourselves, our lives, our futures, 
the outcomes, trusting everything with him. Trusting God in the outcome. With the outcome, yes. Mm-hmm. Because we have seen evidence in Basically. nature, scripture, and our own experience yes. that uh, he is trustworthy. Exactly, exactly. And then what does the blood represent according to scripture? Not according to common teaching. Life. You know, this is not what's taught in the church. Leviticus says the life is in the blood. And the blood brings life. You you partake my blood and eat my flesh, Jesus said in John 6. But what's taught in the church is the blood represents death. It's his death penalty paid in your behalf. That's what they did under the impose. This is shed blood, which is his death. That's what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches his life. And we partake of the life of Christ. So, and then the pardon means forgiveness or escaping the consequence. So what does it all mean? Paul promoted the truth about God, his law and character of love. He revealed that the written law was a diagnostic instrument our gracious God provided to expose sin and lead us to Christ for healing. He taught that those out of harmony with God's design, wrongdoers, must have a fundamental transformation of heart motives, repentance, and die to self, humble themselves, Uh, God's right or just action to those who choose to remain outside his design is to ultimately set them free to reap what they have chosen, the results, his wrath. And the only way to be restored back to God's design is by trusting Jesus, having faith, and partaking of his character represented by his blood. Thus we are transformed in the inner person, and once restored back into harmony with God and his law, we are reconciled and therefore pardoned. This is what it means. Well, then why, and I'm going to close with this, why then is it not say, say that to start with? Why is it written in this other way? Why is it written so difficult? Why do we have to actually use my brain to think it through? Because different people understand in different ways, are at different levels of development, have different abilities to comprehend, speak different languages within the same language. Isn't that right? Different languages within the same language. And God loves them all And so he presents the message in a variety of ways to try and reach them all, no matter where they are in that stage, ultimately leading them back to the reality of who God is in Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are as Jesus revealed you to be. Your universe operates on the protocols of beneficence and giving and love and and that with you there is no no variance, there is no two-faced smiling at one moment and, and, and looking cruel at the next moment. No, that you cry, I'm sure, at the loss of your children. As the scripture describes. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit. Enlighten our minds. Help us to understand the reality of your kingdom and the, and the way your, your universe operates. And enable us to take this message to the world that the hearts and minds of people that are stuck in a, in a perspective that brings no transformation and only, and only causes ultimate fear and insecurity, that they might be freed and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.